Welcome to the Return to the Forgotten Path podcast. Join us on this journey to travel to a forgotten pathway that leads to rest and restoration. This podcast is a weekly Bible study of this week's Torah portion, known as a Parsha. It's a weekly reading according to the Jewish annual Torah cycle. Every week, we will have a discussion filled with both historical and cultural viewpoints as it pertains to the return to the forgotten path that is increasingly happening all around the world. We will review and share opinions from the weekly Torah, also known as the five first books of the Bible or the Mosaic Law. We will also do readings from the Hafsorah and the Brit Hadashah, or the New Testament readings. For those who ask, what is the forgotten path? Jeremiah 6.16 puts it like this. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Our podcast seeks to point our listeners to that ancient old path through the study of the Bible from the perspective of the Torah, which is properly translated as instructions. This Torah portion is Bar which means in the wilderness. This Hebrew name for the fourth book of the Torah also, the name of the first reading for the book of Numbers is Bamidbar. It comes from the first words of the first verse, which say, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. The English title of the book is Numbers, which is derived from the Greek Septuagint version of the Torah. The book of the Numbers tells the story of Israel's trek through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, their failure. At the end of the at the edge of the land and the subsequent 40 years of wandering. It concludes with the story of the second generation's triumphs over the first Canaanite resistance. The book ends with the Israelites poised on the edge of Canaan, ready to take their inheritance. Woven in the midst of these narratives is a significant amount of legal information. This first reading, the midbar, the 34th reading from the Torah, begins with a lifting of the head, accounting census of the tribes of Israel and the Levitical families just prior to their departure from Sinai. The Torah portion is from Numbers chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 4 verse 20, the Haftarah from the book of Hosea chapter 2 verses 1 through 22, and the gospel portion from the book of Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 17. For those of us joining on our Hebrew for Christians journey, you may be reading along, utilizing the Brit Hadashah readings, Romans 9, 22 and through 33, Luke 24, verses 50 through 51, and Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let's begin our study. All right. And now the blessing before the Torah study. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of the Torah. Amen. So we begin with counting all of the men that are ready to go to war from 20 years old and upwards. All in Israel who are able to go to war, the Lord commanded Moses that he and Aaron should Count them, list them family by family. And then a man from each tribe being the head of that. So they call Simeon, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin. <clears throat> All of the tribes, they appointed somebody from there. Moses and Aaron took the names of those who've been named. Excuse me. And they give the count of everybody. So from the people of Reuben, 46,500. From the people of Simeon, 59,300. From Gad, 45,650. Of the tribe of Judah, 74,600. From Issachar, 54,400. From the tribe of Zebulun, 57,400. Of the tribe of Ephraim, 40,500. 
of the tribe of Manasseh, 32,200. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 35,400. Of the tribe of Dan, 62,700. From the tribe of Asher, 41,500. And from the tribe of Naphtali, 53,400. So when you tally up all of the men of fighting age, all listed were 603,550. But the Levites were unlisted because you can't count them because they're supposed to sit there and be over the tabernacle of testimony and all of his friendships and everything that belongs to it. They're not to go out to war. So just take that into account with everything that's being noted. What was interesting to me was this is also the Torah portion of Shavuot. And interestingly enough, that while utilizing the timing sequence, there's quite a bit of uh, delineation of how one is counted and why one is counted that um, is connected to Shavuot. So I want to talk uh, really briefly about the um, directions. And I thought about this, the arrangement of the camp and as the count was going on. As RJ just mentioned, yes, this, I'm calling him RJ today, um, how each family was counted and how many men of fighting age. A fighting age is men of age 20 to 60 years of age, very specific um, age group uh, for the men of Israel. So those that are older and those that are younger are not counted. So when you have 603,550 men of fighting age and we don't have those younger and those older accounted for, you can quickly and easily see that men alone, um, if this was a significant component of the total population, for every maybe one man, if it wasn't like our congregations nowadays, every one man can have every, you know at least two or three women or, or children. Mm. Um, this was a, a huge conglomerate of families traveling through the wilderness together. Um, what I find is very interesting about the, the connection with Shavuot uh, specifically is that it begins with the census of tribes, which is called a Shevatim. Um, and if you know anything about Shavuot, it is based on the, um, the groupings of seven. Mm -hmm. And so interestingly enough that during this, this accounting for this counting period, it was also a time to not only count who was a fighting age, but for those who were of fighting age, because this was this happens during spring, and spring was the season as um, during the time of David that kings went out to war. But according to the Torah, you you couldn't force someone to go out to war. It's more or less you came to be counted. So mm -hmm. it's like you committed yourself to the count. Um, so there was no draft. So these men of fighting age came to be counted. And interestingly enough, the season of Shavuot is also considered the season of uh, recommittal and um, also the season of betrothal um, for the body of Messiah. So in Judaism and in Jewish circles, this is the season where the the women and young people tend to come to reset and refocus their attention on their relationship or their commitment to the observance of Torah happens during Shavuot and and as delineated during the festival of the recitation of the Ten Commandments at the as one of the services it's also the commitment of the principles of the Torah as it pertains to your specific role within the familial context of the 613 principles. Because as you already know, what applies to you know, a Levite is not, it differs than what applies to someone who's of the household of Israel or who a woman, for example, may have some different rules. But each party is ultimately connecting themselves to the household of Israel by observing and committing to fulfill their obligations. So 
during this season, it is a, 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 an opportunity mm-hmm. to kind of foresee and still be courageous to maintain the the guarding of the, the alignment with and the walking out. And that's another uh, component of this is that when I looked at, when I reread um, this Torah portion and then the, the heads of the household were the more or less the counters mm-hmm. and the men had to walk to, you know, to be counted. It's a, it's an active, it's an active participate participatory thing to go out to be counted. Whereas nowadays, some people don't even want to go out to vote. You literally had to physically appear. Okay. So physically appearing before the heads of the household being counted really big. And then the final component here is the alignment or the arrangement of the camps. And I, I, I could see it in my mind when I was reading this, that this did make up what we would call a figure T um, that the Mishkans more or less sat in the middle of the tribes of Israel and to the, north of the camp actually it starts really it always starts with the east of the camp with judah issachar and zebulun being the first camp and that first camp is to the east of the mishkan and then the second camp is to the south and you have gad reuben and simeon and they constituted 151,450. what was interesting to me is that <laughs> with these counts, there was no singular number at the end. Can you imagine how significant it was to have groups of ten hundreds and thousands to go out to war? There wasn't a group that had an odd number. I always thought that was interesting. You know that each and every group had tens show up, right? And it always ended with a count of ten or a count of hundreds. Found that interesting, also. Yeah. And then on the third, which is the, uh, excuse me, the west side of the camp, or you can say the left side of the camp, you would have Manasseh, Ephraim, and Benjamin on that side of the camp. And that third side of the camp was 108,100 men. And then to the north of the camp, you have Asher, Dan, and Naphtali um, making up 157,600. And I thought it was interesting that the components and, uh, and how they were comprised um, was significant in that almost like the north and the south camps, the second and the fourth camp had almost equal numbers, 100, 151 versus 157 uh, to the north. And then on the east and the west, they were not necessarily the same. They were kind of like a, a strong arm and a weak arm, you mm-hmm. know? So the, on the right-hand side, there was uh, the first camp with Issachar, Judah, and Zebulun. And then on that arm, it had 186,400. Whereas on the left side of the camp, there was only 108,100. So it, it really does kind of mirror the image of being a full man, kind of connecting to what the scriptures call the body of Messiah. No man can say to the hand, you know, we are all one body. But the imagery of the body literally aligning itself with the one man, the perfect man, the new Adam, in how the strong arm of the camp, really the head of the camp is on the the right side with the strong arm. Hmm. So I just, I I saw some connections image wise and just how it was all made up. And I just wanted to bring that out as we are reviewing this. We're looking going forward, looking at the duties of the Levites and how they were separated from the count and the other tribes because of their specific duties. Verse five of chapter three is where we're starting. And bring the tribe of Levite near, set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him, Aaron, and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. So skipping forward to verse 10, and you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, they shall guard their priesthood. If any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And then 
Verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Behold, I've taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine for all the firstborn are mine. And then verse 14 is where Moses speaks to Moses. The Lord speaks to Moses, excuse me, in the wilderness. And says, list the sons of Levi's by father's house and by clan. Every male from a month old and upward you shall list. So Moses listed. The account came to 22,300. Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm-hmm. Now, the Levites and the sons of Aaron are not the same. Correct. The sons of Aaron, they're a subset of the Levites. So keep that in mind because Levi's got three sons. He's got Gershon, he's got Kohath, he's got Merari. And so they all have different roles to play within this maintaining the tabernacle and the ministry. So for Aaron and his sons, they're the priests. For Gershon, which belonged to the clan of the Libnites and the clan of the Shimeites, and that's verse 21, just so if you're following along with me, they're listing according to the number of all the males from a month old and upwards, 7,500. They camped on the west side. Their guard duty involved the tabernacle, the tent with its coverings, the screen for the entrance of the tent to meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the door of the court that's around the tabernacle and the altar and its court. Just going back again to what Laverne was saying with everyone's got a role to play within the body of Messiah. So Kohath belonged to the clan of the Amramites and the clan of the Isharites and the clan of the Hebronites and the clan of the Uzzahites. Now, of all those males, is 8,600. They were camping on the south side. Their guard duty involved the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the vessels, or the sanctuary with which the priests minister and the screen. That was their role. Eliezer, the son of Aaron, was to be chief over the chiefs of the Levites and kept, and he had responsibility oversight of those who kept guard over the sanctuary. However, for Merari, there had the clan of the Malites and the clan of the Mushites. The listing of all their males a month old and upward was 6,200. <clears throat> Excuse me. They camped in the north side. I'm sorry. One month old. One month old. Awesome. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Their uh, responsibility involved the frames of the tabernacles, the bars, the pillars, the bases, and all the accessories, all the service connected with those. Also, the pillars around the court with their bases and pegs and cords. So those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, were Moses and Aaron and his sons, guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. And any outsider who came near was to be put to death. All those listed among the Levites, Moses and Aaron listed as at the commandment of the Lord by clans, all the males from a month old and upward, once again, 22,000. And then there was a redemption of the firstborn. And this is around from verse 40. And then verse 43 says, 22,273 were the total number of all the firstborn males from a month old and upward. And then the Lord reiterates to Moses, take the Levites instead of the, all the firstborn among the people of the Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. And as a redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of people of Israel over and above the number of the male Levites, you should take five shekels per head and give them to Aaron and his sons as a redemption price for those who are over. So that was done. And Moses gave the money. And then we go into reiterating the duties of the Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Meherites in chapter 4. And I think, once again, just going into all that, first, it touches base on to be a priest or a minister. You're from 30 to 50. Mm-hmm. So you're 20 years old to go to war to minister, you're 30. But you also have an ending date at 50. So you got this span of 20 years in which you can work. And everybody had their specific duties. As a priest. As a priest. 40 years to mm-hmm. old um, difference with fighting. You could be right. 20 to 60 years old to go off to war. 
Right. Mm-hmm. But for those that were ministering the tabernacle, um, all of the Levites, Aaron's sons, Kohath and Ravi, Gershon's, all their families, 30 to 50. Mm-hmm. But they also did not go out to war. Right. Yeah. All of them being within the Levite clan, tribe, grouping, their responsibilities for everything within the temple. But then they go back and they, um, the Lord breaks out again how everybody's supposed to take their part. So Aaron and sons, they're the ones that take down the veil of the screen, cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. They break out all of the individual responsibilities that go through it. Then when Aaron and his sons finish covering the sanctuary and all of his furnishings, as the camp sets out, then the sons of Kohath come to carry these, but they don't touch the holy things because if they do, they die. Mm-hmm. And then Eliezer, the son of Aaron, shall have charge of the oil for the light, the fragrant incense, the regular grain offering, the anointing oil with the oversight of the whole tabernacle and all that's in it, the sanctuary and the vessels. And the final verse says, states that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things, Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden. But they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. So it seems like, okay, all this repetition is a little bit excessive, but then if you remember how Aaron's first two sons died when they did the first, um, I was going to say ordination, but the first service in the Mishkan, it bears repeating because the consequences have been dire. Mm-hmm. So let's just make sure we're all on the same page again, lest we have a problem the second time around. What did you um, wish to add? Um, I'm utilizing Hebrew for Christians, and they have every week this uh, advanced questions called the table talk. So in the table talk, some aspects of the counts that are more Jewish mysticism What's still very much interesting that I would like to share is there was a question of, of how were the, the babies counted? Um, okay, so according to Jewish legend, how did Moses count the babies of the Levites? And remember, this is from one month old. Right. So according to this, the um, Jewish mysticism, when, um, excuse me, 19, um, God instructed the child to walk up to the tent and a bat kol or a heavenly voice would tell them tell them the number tell tell the number to him okay so in other words it was a divine call to be called and matter so mm-hmm. you mattered to hashem so much so that at 1 month old which is amazing for a baby to walk up to the tent that's a miracle of miracles that's the point. It's a. That's what. Well, God instructed Moses to walk up to the tents. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was mm. asking the babies to walk up to the tents. It's mm. a miracle of miracles. A one-month-old baby. Wow. Yeah, because remember they were still in the period of separation. You know, the mother's. Dad. That's what I'm right. thinking too. But the, the baby being is not necessarily in the uh, period of separation. No, but he couldn't go into the tent. Okay. So somebody had to let him know how many people were in there. That makes complete sense. Okay. So I was like, miracle, baby's yeah. walking out of rock. <laughs> All right, so clarification. Another uh, piece of information that was here that I thought was very interesting. Um, uh, uh, there was a question about who traveled the entire desert walking backwards. And you just mentioned this, this tribe uh, in your response, and it was the Kohathites. The Kohathites who carried the Ark of the Covenant in front were required not to not to turn their backs to the ark. Hmm. Okay. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. That is very interesting. I would think the opposite. I would think that you aren't supposed to look upon the ark, but I guess their job is to pay attention, you know? I guess so. So they walk the entire desert backwards. These men had very strong not only backs but also legs. So that's awesome because they had to carry the ark on poles. They could not mm-hmm. touch it. So um, very interesting um, context for their role. You never thought about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, another, you know, interesting uh, connotation that I would not have also thought about 
uh, why were Jewish men under the age of 20 not allowed to fight in Israel's battles? So this is using um, the context of how a Jewish child is raised in modern times, um, or let's say for the past 2000 years, at least according to Jewish customs. At five years of age, the study okay. of scripture begins. Mm -hmm. um, at 10, the study of Mishnah. At 13, the obligation to observe the mitzvot. At 15, the study of Talmud. And at 18, marriage. And at 20, one begins the pursuit of light or the avodah, the mm. work of being an adult. So I thought that was very interesting. And for the last component of uh, a discussion point, utilizing the talking points from Hebrews for Christian, there was a, a, a point made in reading Numbers chapter 2, verse 2, where it specifically stated the following. Every one of the Israelites must camp under his standard with the emblems of his family. They must camp at some distance around the tent of meeting. In the book of Joshua, the people were further instructed to keep 3,000 feet away from the Ark of the Covenant, Joshua chapter 3, verse 4, which the rabbis later interpreted to mean that there should be a walking limit or a roof of no more than 3,000 feet beyond one's house on the Sabbath. So how does the idea of boundaries for the community and its benefits and limitations play out, not only in that era, but in modern times. Hmm. Tell me more. It's a question. You tell me more. Hmm. I think, and I guess it's going to be a really basic answer, but I think, you know, everyone's got their place and everyone needs their room to grow in their relationship. Sometimes we try to force people along our path and don't give them the room to learn and grow God, you know, grow into their relationship with God as themselves. Like when I was 16, I was doing this, that, and the other. When I was 12 and I did that, and everyone's journey is a little bit different. And sometimes giving them that room to explore and to grow into this right relationship is not always taken into account because we're judging their walk by our experience or by another one that we've seen. And that's where I'm thinking as far as distance, not necessarily like physical, keep six feet apart or something along those lines. Although I'm sure there was a physical requirement because we've got that many people. That's going to be something. In the desert, that's a lot of heat. Yeah, <laughs> I need space. But that's what came to my mind first. It's just, you know, that, yes, there's certain seasons of life and everything, but not everybody hits these milestones and revelation moments on their birthday or the day after, we all get understanding piece by piece, bit by bit, as it's inspired and as we connect the dots. And being just being mindful to give each other a little grace along the way and not make fun of each other because you're 21 years and two days. By the time I hit my birthday, I was already doing cartwheels. What's going on with you? That type of stuff. So that's my thoughts. Don't quite know if that was the answer you were looking for, but that's... I don't have an answer specifically. It's much more of a discussion. Um, I wasn't thinking of distance and boundaries in the same context. To me, a boundary is like a a border for protection and safekeeping. Okay. Um, to a degree, and this is my how I, you know, define it in my relationships. If I say that I this is a boundary, some people may see it as a limitation, do not cross, it's a line, do mm -hmm. not cross. But on the opposite end, I see it as a, this in, in the context of how you're saying it, it's the space for us to relate. Um, I do feel like a, uh, that boundary of offense, it's a place of protection too, where when you are starting a relationship, you have to set the boundary so we can accept an expectation of what each party is supposed to be doing within the relationship. However, boundaries also do come with mm. lines being crossed mm -hmm. um, where there is a, a feeling that that limitation of that line being drawn does limit the expression of what the other party can and cannot do 
or how they can and will be perceived and received because that's a boundary that's it it goes it cuts both ways and so from that same perspective i do find that there are moments where it takes some getting accustomed to as one of my friends told me to live with boundaries and so with that context, I'm going to give the story when she mentioned it. So my friend and I were talking and she was referring to my old behavior. And the old behavior was when people would say things that I did not like, I would just let them say it. I just figured it's your right, your mouth, say whatever you please. Mm -hmm. And she said that, you know, that as children of God, we are to resemble him mm -hmm. and God has boundaries and he has a demand to be respected within the context of those boundaries. And as children of God, we too need to learn to define our boundaries because we are not practicing love for ourselves or for those around us by not maintaining those boundaries because it makes it very um, difficult for people to understand you and to perceive your value when you've diminished it by allowing others to not see it or to disrespect it. And I'm telling you that it was a light bulb day and a light bulb moment because in the act of what I perceived love as, especially from, again, this Christian perspective where you know, love is patient, love is kind. Basically, love takes a bunch of crap. That's how I perceive love. Right. And I thought love is also silent, meaning mm -hmm. like you did not say that you were offended. You do not say that you were, and I know this is going much further than what was originally mentioned here. Definitely get it. But there is a direct correlation in terms of not only the body, but in the within the household and in terms of one-to-one -one relationships. When we diminish a boundary or we diminish the need for boundaries, we've also taught and trained somebody to expect that they can redefine and set for you what your value is. You've basically given them nothing to express how you wish to be treated or what you desire to communicate in the world. You've become a blank slate. That's ultimately true for a lot of the behaviors where we, we were taught, give somebody, you know, the cloak off your back, not without the right context. Mm -hmm. Give them, you know, if they slap you one, you know, one cheek, give them the other cheek to slap. In the wrong context, it was seen that you are supposed to become the dirt that they walk on, that's really, you know, of no, derived of no value. Mm. And I don't believe that that is the, the proper context. It's actually improper because it literally does not bring glory to God. It does not, it diminishes the value of what you are actively pursuing, which is oneness with humanity. The, the scripture says that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. That's oneness, come into oneness. Mm -hmm. um, you can't love something that you don't respect. And ultimately, boundaries and how we define each other ultimately also are these lines that we are setting in the sand. And we're expressing to others the way to relate to me will help you to understand the unique nature that was created when God breathed into this frame. It's not going to be, my boundary may not be yours. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that there's something wrong with your boundary, but it does bring to mind the benefit of having these boundaries because just as our heavenly father is also teaching the children of Israel during the, the counting that you matter. He's also saying, I matter as the holder of the jewels, as the holder of the camp, as the one who's unifying us, I want you to walk in concert with me. 
But to walk with in concert with me, then you have to understand there's a boundary or a border a, a, or a, a set way that I want you to show up in the world that looks more like me. And people will know that you're with me, not only during this period where there's a pillar of fire by by day and a cloud by, I'm doing that wrong, a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. But now there is a, the, the scripture says, by their love for one another, they will know. By that pacing walk that says, I'm fitting within the context of what you've prescribed for me. That's a boundary. That is distinguishing us in the world. And it makes it very um, specific as to what he has required of us. That too is a boundary. So for me, boundaries are sometimes limiting, but there's straight benefits with it too. And we can see that, especially when we go to the ironic blessing, there's protection, there's favor, there's lifting of heads, there's, you know, uh, when I'm walking with my big brother and I'm walking with my, you know, my big guards around me, there's a, a set basis of not only myself, but the entire whole, the family, the friends, the network is now protected within this set place, the prescribed walk. And so I do feel like the banner over me being the boundary of love and what you see in songs, uh, Song of Solomon's chapter two, verse four, is what each camp bearing together, each with their unique count, each with their unique um, strength, each within their unique um, call to bear arms or to show up and to protect the, the guard on this side of that, each with the family color and their emblem and what they prescribe value or what they are gifted in, each are bringing wholeness and fill, uh, a, a, a full-bodied experience that has not only color, but it has, like we were talking about today, like flavor, it has depth, it has texture, it has, you know, enjoyment, it has energy, it has emotion. It has the entire experience, which is called abundant life and abundant living. And that can't be had without boundaries because you deciding that I no longer want to live with in this prescribed way how do we come together? There's a scripture, there's another scripture that says, how can two walk together unless they agree? That is also a boundary, you know? You got to agree on where to meet. You got to agree how we're going to walk this out. You know, that prescribed walk maintains this banner and it's important because it also creates the experience that you and I are having, but it also creates what we are leaving or training somebody else in both our nations around us, hmm as well as our children behind us that come after. So it's a, it's a very important thing. And to that end, I am going to bring up the second topic and, and the second and last topic, which is our half Torah portion talks about the sota uh, wife, the unfaithful wife. And so I'm going to read real quickly from uh, Hosea and then I would like to just kind of discuss that component of our half Torah portion, because it will also come up during um, next week's Torah portion as well. So I'm going to read just the scripture and all right, and then we can possibly end our talk with this if you have anything else. So it says, say to your, your brothers, you are my people and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Now, this begins with some really harsh words. Ouch. Um, everything that is coming, every single line just seems like this is, you know, this is the end of a, a marriage and this party is hurt <laughs> and they are 
you know, out for blood. That's what this sounds like. But far from it, that's not what's really happening here. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to just read. In the day when Messiah returns, the Jewish people will again be called my people and sisters who have regained God's mercies, my people and sisters. Meanwhile, the children of Israel are urged to chastise their mother, Israel, who has reduced herself to the level of the unfaithful wife, the Sotah. Therefore, God will punish Israel and remove from her the joy of the land. Nonetheless, God will have mercy on Israel yet again and all the harsh punishments into turn all the harsh punishments into great blessings. The Lord will speak tenderly to Israel and restore her to condition when he ransoms her from her bondage in Egypt. Hosea 2 verse 19 reads, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. In the coming millennial kingdom, when Yeshua the Messiah reigns in Jerusalem, the Jewish people who have survived the tribulation will long at last be fully restored as God's covenant people upon the earth. That's what's written here. So my question to you as the Sota wife, how are we um, in this day and age not observing God's covenant and being unfaithful uh, to the prescribed walk? of being his, my people, my bride. There's so many ways, and that's where, you know, going into next week's portion about confessing your sins and repenting is so important, but just on a very high level, everything we do is a walk towards the perfection of God's word. You know, we're going to learn. And everything every we do? Everything that we should be doing should be going oh. towards that. Um, <laughs> and so we're going to miss the mark. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to learn that, oops, that wasn't the right way to apply that. Or we're just going to flat out just do the wrong thing. And so it is taken with a great severity because the Lord is love, is perfect in, you know, all that he does and all that he is. So when you're not in that oneness, it's looking like you're, you've broken that covenant. Now, that doesn't mean like you just mentioned it, there's no path back, but it really isn't a great area where this was just a little white lie or this was just a little sin, there's no real degree. You're either faithful or you're not. And without that ability to confess, repent, and turn back to the Lord and adherence to the Torah, we would be without any righteousness or ability to make ourselves whole again. Mm. So, you know, thank God for Messiah Yeshua. But, you know, we all to be, you know, to just recap on your question, we all sin, we all miss the mark, we're all void of the glory of God, and we all like that unfaithful spouse looking to come back into good graces and right relationship as we catch ourselves doing the things that we ought not do, and I say, oh, I, I see that, I didn't mean to do it, I'm fixing it by not doing that any further. Please help me as I move forward. Well, um, to that end, the book of Numbers, Bamidbar, in the desert or in the waste place, wasted waste places. Mm -hmm. um, this book is really, like as you mentioned, it's the place where they're about to enter in, they disobey, mm -hmm. and for 40 years they wander. And the end of the book of Numbers, which is Bamidbar again, is them now resetting their focus to go back in. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think, as you just mentioned here, the unfaithfulness that our 
on what I look at the word, if I was to break it down, unfaithful to me, it's like being short-sighted, uh, not having strong connection to the promise, not believing it for its true value, not receiving that favor, not receiving whatever the mercy was. So when um, Hosea, you know, words of Hosea is really, really, really strong. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so strong to the degree that sometimes you have to perceive our headstrongness and the gift of the mercy of God. Because in our headstrongness, we have said, "I will go after my own lovers. I'll, you know, I'll make my own heyday. Um, I will, because uh, those lovers they gave me my bread and my water. They gave me my wool and my flax. They gave me my oil and my drink." Um, but the one who really did it was all Hashem. He's the one who bestowed the jewels and provided for me and maintained me, maintained, gave, you know, produced, made, produced the land that was under my feet and made it fruitful, um, made me look like, you know, a dime piece, more or less, using mm-hmm. the terms from the 90s, um, who was lavishing me with silver and gold. And in all of the things that he bestowed upon us without us even being aware we in our unwillingness to receive his promise run opposite and contrary and so in those things we too do operate as that sota that unfaithful wife and i think it's kind of going back to that scripture i always think about the scripture because it's like you know it would have been better for you not to have put your hand to the plow than to put your hand to the plow and then return. Mm-hmm. It would have been better if you, you know, and, and using the words of our old pastor, she was like, you know, just live your life. If, if you're not ready to commit yourself to the Lord, just live your life. I can't, maybe I can't remember the exact words, but she was like, the. I think the context of the way that she would say it is, um, if parting is what you want to do, party, mm-hmm. do it wholeheartedly, but don't, and if, but if church is what you want to do, if you want to uh, quote unquote play church, don't play church. Don't don't dress up the part. If what your heart really is pursuing is out there, go wholeheartedly, whole hog after it. But when you really commit yourself here, and you commit yourself to Hashem, make sure that you're not putting on a facade, more or less, because it would have been better for you just to have the thing that you were chasing after anyway, mm-hmm. than to be divided. And, you know, the scripture says that a divided man is unstable in all his ways. He, he will not profit at all. It, it, it would be would have been better to have found out that chasing that was not profitable rather than to be like, eh, hedging my bets. No, 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 no. Make the firm decision as to what it is. We would desire, you know, now that I have come to this side, but mm-hmm. I realize I came to this side after having played the fool, too. I played the fool thinking that the world had it all. And I recognize in comparison, not really. So I, I don't necessarily think the distance that he gave me was like you were talking about, um, was detrimental. Meaning like when I was not really interested in following, I, I perceive that distance to be beneficial because I could compare really what was in the house versus being outside the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that as much as we would all want our children that are, you know, to follow the ways of Hashem, we do recognize as well, too, that it is it is for it's difficult for a carnal mind to perceive the spiritual. It is extreme. It's impossible, it says the scripture, even um, you just don't understand that way. It is when my heart is renewed and my mind has been retrained in the things of God that I start to perceive the things that were hidden before. That was always there, but it was hidden from my purview and my understanding. And so from that, from that understanding, I can see how the scripture says, therefore I will take her back. You know, when she receives, she did, and she did not know that I was the one who gave her that grain, that wine. I think God in his mercy knows that we don't know that we have been chasing after the the whispers, something that looks like something that's glittering, 
but really it's not gold. We're chasing after oasises that really will not produce water. Mm. And to that end, I do receive the gift of mercy and the gift of forgiveness because had it not been given to me, I could not be considered betrothed because we too, like sheep, have gone astray each to his own way. Um, and, you know, thank God that we do have a shepherd that calls us and knows us each by name, that numbers the hairs on our heads and knows our falters, knows where we falter, knows where we're weak, and is merciful yet to forgive it all and still call us my people. And so I hope in sharing all of this that we have kind of brought together the context of what being in those wilderness places are for not only you, but also for ourselves, because we all go through that place where we are uh, far off from the promised land. But we can, we remember the promise and we remember the promise giver. And by virtue of coming back into lockstep and back into the boundary, back into the family, we start to learn and receive through that learning of the family and the, the gift giver and the, the covenant. You learn his ways and you learn how much more sweeter is the boundary of the family and the gift and the fullness of the abundant life with your betrothed. So I hope that this is something that you can see and receive uh, for yourselves this week. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. So as we conclude this podcast episode, we always encourage those that are listening to like, share, subscribe, and continue the dialogue with us. By all means, please feel free to share any of these sessions with anyone within your circle and those that you meet. May we all be enlightened by our study together and learning of the world. And to reach us, our website is return.rest and email is call to the number two at return.rest. So by all means, send your questions, your comments, your thoughts. Let's see what we can do to keep making this something of great value to each other. And as we close, we'll close with the Eskayim prayer. Eskayim ki amachazikim bar beton mekeha nevushar derakeha darkei noah vechol nativoteka shalom hashivenu adonai Eleka Venashuba Kadesh Kadesh Yamenu Kadesh Yamenu Kekem. It is a tree of life to those who take hold of it, and those who support it are praiseworthy. Its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. Bring us back, Lord, to you, and we shall come renew our days as of old. Shalom, y'all.